In terms of tax policy, I'm curious what your thoughts are. It's been my point of view uh, for a very long time that what we really need is uh, a very diverse set of taxes uh, with the base as broad as possible and a rate as absolutely low as possible because that's a situation where you have less deadweight loss in society because it's less, it's, it's much simpler to comply with, with a very broad-based tax. And uh, you have less incentive to try and evade or avoid taxes. The lower the rate is, the less incentive you have to try and evade or avoid it. Uh, I know we've got, right now, people talking about uh, uh, what euphemistically call a fair tax, which is not where there's a uh, very substantial uh, sales tax at the national level where, and you eliminate all these other taxes, like the death tax, which is interesting to me. Well, do you have thoughts on, uh, on that I tend to agree thing? with you. In a sense, I want a low-tax economy because, because what we've created is a one where all the incentives are wrong. So we, we, business goes offshore, it can successfully evade tax, and, the, and tax falls on the worker. I also feel we tax wealth, uh, but not unearned wealth. So the, we, we tax most jobs. You know, um, we create kind of marginal rates for moving off welfare to, into work that are awful. And the more we make our people poor through taxation, which is what we're doing, the more we went than reliant on welfare, which... <laughs> which then creates the, a sort of deeply unvirtuous circle. But I think, you're, I, think, I think there's two principles that are difficult here. I think tax should be simple and diverse, but diversity tends to introduce complexity, which militates against simple taxation. And I think what we need to do is align tax to the outcomes we want, uh, which we find it very difficult to do. So one of the things that, that was interesting to me as I was driving, and Scott was very kindly driving me through, is... This is just this. This is an aside, but I'm using it just as a hypothetical to make the point. Is God new buildings are really ugly? You know, driving along the American freeway and and you see what people design and utterly no care at all for the community for binding stuff in. Now, and I was just thinking, just as we tax kind of polluters, there's kind of an aesthetic pollution going on. <laughs> you know, now quite what the incentives might be for making these buildings beautiful is is a question, is a question we should ask. But largely speaking, I think if you want to get taxes being popular and productive, whereas they're unpopular and unproductive, we need to tie taxation to outcome. One thing that interests me is the failure of green approaches around carbon, because you can't see it, and it just comes with a massive bureaucracy and a tax bill, and a success of hypothecated green taxes uh, across Europe, where you link, um, where you link taxation to a certain activity, and the and the resources from that go into something people like trees or parks or whatever. And I think we're heading to a situation where we need participatory budgeting and participatory taxation. And the more we can align taxation to the outcomes we want and reward the behaviour we want, the more we'll reduce the need for the state, because there won't be the forms of bad externalities, and the more we'll actually bind the populace in to the sort of taxation people support. What do you mean by participatory budgeting? Well, if you Porto Alegre in, in Brazil, they started off with 1% participatory budgeting and they're moving up close to a third. And that is where you involve people in the, the budgets in their area. So um, policing, for example. So in Britain, we have a very 
poor structure of policing where people can't control local police and can't control kind of how they deploy their officers and when they deploy them and so on and so forth. If you involved kind of, if you're able to localise some aspect of that tax burden, then key people in as taxpayers to how police resources were used. You'd have participatory budgeting that would make the police accountable to the to the public and make the public happier, happier with the police service. Now, now, do you mean that they have to live in a particular area or they have to be... They have to respond to some public... Well, think of the London riots, for example. So, you know, the general quid pro quo is we pay our taxes and you'll stop this sort of thing uh, yeah. kicking off. It's a clear failure to deliver that because the police were centralised, they weren't localised, they weren't able to deploy resources in a way uh, <clears throat> that would work, and there was no structure of accountability. So the British government is rightly bringing in elected police... Uh, chiefs and elected um, um, mayors and all of this is heading down the road towards including more people in the local budgets and the way in which money is spent on them and the government also has a transparency agenda so anything over I think £500 is, you can now track down from where the budget allocated to where it's spent and all of this is leading I think to the idea that you can localise taxes much more effectively. We've got a very centralised taxation system in Britain. And if you can localise taxes more effectively, what you can actually do is lower the tax burden through being more appropriate about where money is spent and how it is spent, and it becomes more popular. Because like you, I'm in favour of a low-tax environment, but the key is, is how do you have diversity and, and a broad base? And I think the only way to square that circle is through structures of local accountability. Because it's that that will reduce demand. It's that that will also allow you to cope with variation in what people want. Phil, could I ask a quick question? Sure. Something that I'm Can sure... Just grab some more coffee? Yeah, and, and I'm also going to say, we find out if we needed to take a break at... No, about I'm fine quarter, to keep About going. quarter till or ten till, you're going to need to probably. I just like to have something to eat. That'd be handy. But I yeah. can do that later. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to have dinner at five, and there's also, by the way, why don't we put all these? We got bowls full of nuts yeah. and stuff over here. Nuts at the table. That auto. I mean, I'm going to be repeating most of this in the <clears> talk, <throat> so I hope you won't. Feel repeated at right. So I want to. I am going to see you tonight. Oh, thank want, you very thank much. You for your Do you have any final questions you'd like to ask? <laughs> You've had enough for me to. She won. Okay, real pleasure. Much as I'd love to sit all day. Cheers. <laughs> I'd like to turn to an article too. So when, when we talk but about you're local, there you've got a business to run. Right? Local is there. You've got a business to run. Right? You know, we we have a history here of once upon a time states' rights, etc. Um, and one of the reasons we have centralization is things like Jim Crow, where the local communities actually institutionalized behaviors that were um, ultimately anathema to other parts of, of a country. How do you localize and yet at the same time protect against those kinds of abuses, or are you, or can you? Very, I mean, I think, I find this in Britain as well as in America, People on the left tend to think if you have localism, the fascists will take over, you know. So in America, if you have localism, the rednecks will take over and there'll be lynchings on the street. And in Britain, the, 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 the Nazis will get elected. Um, I think this is not true. 
I think it's a genuine and legitimate fear, but I think it's easily dealt with. What governments should now do is be utterly indifferent about process. Government shouldn't give a damn about how you realise the public goods you want to realise, but it should be very insistent about outcome. So you can say for schooling, I don't care how you teach, I don't care what you teach in a way, or I don't care how you deliver the results we want, but these are the results we want. And what that then does is it says for all your forms of public sector activity, you can innovate. You can homeschool, you can hybrid school, you can do whatever you want as long as you deliver excellence. Now, within those accounts of outcome, you have very clearly, you can't be racist, you can't sort of operate against the interests of your own people. Now, I think that's very easy to do. I don't think that's difficult. And you can have rules about that and you can intervene. But what's actually happened, um, I think someone said it at a talk, is you don't just have centralised government in this country, you have centralised administration. And when you have centralised administration, you destroy all power and innovation and you make it impossible for ordinary people to make a difference to their localities or, or where they live or on how they survive. So they become passive, they become unable to make a difference and that creates an ideal playing field for oligopolies and monopolies. And remember, it's the big players who want standardisation because it's the big players who can deliver on that. See, now, where's the teeth in that, though? So, like, so in other words... Very, very... Um, if you, sorry. If you, um, you're delivering the results, right, but if you don't deliver the results, what's your consequence? You lose the contract. You lose the contract, mm. you lose the funding, you lose... You lose everything. All right, right. So there is, uh, there is, at some level, some kind of higher governmental power to insist upon localism in some... It can be a higher local democratic power. You know, you can't, you can't say locally we think it's okay to eat people. You know, and... Uh, because it contravenes universal <laughs> code. And I think most people would realise that. So, you, you, you know... It's a fundamental French error. The more I, I'm in America, the more I think America's deeply French and revolutionary French, yeah. Thank you, Thomas Jefferson. Mm. And it needs to be English. And it needs to be Burkean. And, uh, and um, the revolutionary French said, we're going to... Everything has to be the same everywhere, otherwise we can't deliver universals. And the legacy of that is written from Vietnam to Rwanda to Algeria to Cambodia. It's a disaster. Why? Because it, it doesn't account for human variety. What the British said is universals are made up of particulars and we only know universals through particulars and each particular can expand the notion of the universal and we don't know universals before we know particulars. In fact, particulars are how you know universals. And so the, the British are naturally bottom up. They naturally allow what it is to be British to be expanded by different accounts of it. And so that's why Britain fought Hitler. That's why Britain, in many ways, is still the best country to be in if, if you're a minority. It's why um, um, Britain has such a stable and successful political structure. And it's also, a sense of equality and diversity sometimes in collision no, with yeah, each other. No, there's none of that. Why? Because diversity is how universals realise themselves in the world. In America, you're too French. And therefore, diversity threatens universality. 
and therefore you standardise and you smash innovation and local power. I thought it was too Scots-Irish, but... It's actually French. I view your political system as revolutionary French, and I think it's really problematic. One Um, question I had regarding the... So just in the context of the education, and you're talking about going different ways, whatever, do your Montessori, do your charters, you can do it in in the same locality. Right. When you get to that point of saying, okay, but here's the outcome that we expect from that, how is that different from the standardized... You know outcomes that we expect now, in which a lot of us who are in education see our students coming in from high school, playing towards these standardized results, which then take away their ability to think critically. And I think that's true. What's the answer on the exam? Well, if you don't allow standard approaches, but you insist on certain types of outcome, your outcomes will be different. The outcomes for a standardized system will be different from the outcomes for a non-standardized system. And what's interesting, then, is you actually have a plurality of business models competing to see what wins. Now, what's interesting is what will win will be different. There'll be a pathway for less academically gifted students, but one which speaks to technical aptitude. There'll be a different pathway for the different sort of outcomes people need, psychological or academic. But actually, the overall outcome, in my view, will be far more excellent than a standardised outcome that's the same for everybody and doesn't meet anybody's needs. So it's pure, uh, pluralising the outcomes. Yeah, but you, so you, kind you, of in the way that you're clustering. You're yeah, earlier, but you, you can. Plurality doesn't mean each cancels the other out. And we know this right. as human beings, don't we? I mean, I'm, not, I'm really not very good at most things. I'm, I'm really not. I'm quite good at some things. And I'm aware of that. And I'm aware I need other people who are talented in ways I'm not talented. I mean, ask anyone who runs a business, you know. I mean, it's very, you know what you're good at and what you're not. So I think similarly for education. And I think we've got to have a model for education where we turn out well-rounded people who are <coughs> capable of specialisation. That's almost what I would ask at age 21. And in my country, we're ca- turning out people who are specialised in things they don't want to do and aren't capable of being well-rounded. But that's the British system. And I think the American university system is actually in some ways much better. No, I think it is, because I think a liberal arts approach produces people who aren't terrified of argument or figures. And our our specialised approach... Our our specialised approach produces very good elite institutions, actually the best elite institutions in the world, if you believe the last two current lead tables on top, in one was Cambridge, on top another was Oxford. But I'm not, I don't really care about elite outcomes, I, I care about medium outcomes, because it's medium outcomes that determine the future of your country. And Americans, for, you know, your high schools are poor, and um, that's why they need standardising, that's why you have another year of degree, because... You know, the variety is far too yeah. wide. We teach the incoming freshmen. We and so you see that. Where we're trying to get them up to a, basically a British high school level. Right. So you standardise, really, in the first year of your degrees, would be my sense of, of what you do. But what I like about the American system is you have kind of electives and people come out kind of oddly more roundly skilled than they come out of British universities. So somebody can come out of a British university quite easily doing just the same course. I don't think that's right for a 21st century economy. Yeah, the pressure's on to, to, to standardise and make 
you know, we, we, we teach these gen ed courses where they have to deal with history and literature and a bunch of things. Sure. And they, you know, a lot of them say, well, what, what, what job can I get with this education? We have to remind them that part of getting a job isn't knowing how to think as a human being. Compl and be a well, citizen. we all suffer from that. Absolutely. Um, but I, I use this as a way of saying that, that if you concentrate on outcome, you often get a much better result. And also parents, you know, you evolve people in saying, well, did this outcome work for you? And people are able to differentiate. And if we really believe in a free society, we can't just have competition within one business model. We have to have competition between different business models. And people generally know something like education, whether it's been a success or not. This isn't something you, you have a sense of it, often quite a successful <coughs> sense. You know, things like foreign languages is quite a good indicator mm. at a certain level. You kind of know if you can speak German or you can't. Can, can it's not like philosophical. Because I, I, I think you were asking a slightly different question, if I may. Just, um, so who writes, the who writes the list of what's expected? I think you have to let everybody write the list of what's expected because, okay. because, because everybody's, you know, there's kind of almost three or four different parties, aren't there? There's the parents, there's the children themselves, then there's the university professors and the teachers, and then there's the, the nation. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think that's something we all need to collaborate on. So some kind of collaborative model where yeah. everybody gets to participate. Yeah, but, in what but this we also, whenever we say collaboration, we also have to understand the limits of... Committees are not good structures for delivering human excellence. <laughs> Nothing really excellent was ever delivered by a committee. Um, what committees are good at creating is platforms within which people can specialise their own excellence. So we need to, just to use the app and Apple model, we need to think, we need to democratise the platform, but somehow have individualised applications that sit on it. Yeah, because everyone is not equally qualified to decide what an outcome should be. Exactly, and that's where you need that. That's where you need to liberalise it and, and, and keep it open. And actually, institutions that work, that parents like, students like, and the professors like, will survive and prosper, and be able to testify to the na the nation. Actually, we do a great deal of good. So that isn't something we should fear. You know, if you have broad-based support for what you do, you'll succeed. Can I ask a question about localism? One of the, return to that aspect, in, in support of competition generally delivers good results. One of the things that we've encountered in the States, particularly, are communities within one metropolitan area competing against each other, sort of a race to the bottom, of uh, competing for corporate, you know, especially with corporate investment. There's a great case study recently, Hoffman Estates in Chicago got Sears out of the Sears Tower to move to a suburban campus. They're paying no taxes. The schools are failing in the community, but they've got this all the, the, the infrastructure burden of a large corporation. And so you have a lot in, in places where they've one attempt to, to address that is communities like Toronto in Canada or uh, Minneapolis, where they've incorporated all the suburbs into a larger you know, sort of umbrella of governance, which um, sort of makes an argument for a more regional governance structure. Because within the, the, the small communities, are, they're sort of competing against each other. So I think how do you handle that paradox? Well, I think, I think you name the paradox, mm -hmm. and you name where it's successful and unsuccessful, and then good human beings of goodwill can see that. Mm -hmm. And I think there is zero-sum competition, but there's also productive competition. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to conceptually distinguish between the two, and I think we can. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I think that actually making that distinction is vitally important because if we don't make that distinction, we'll have a variant of beggar thy neighbour protectionism mm -hmm. under the guise of free market competition. Because in a way, it's a form of protectionism because you're saying I capture the corporate. Right. Yeah. Which is odd. I was like the corporate touting round for who can look after its vested interest best. Mm -hmm. It's probably not good for the corporate either. Yeah. Even if it thinks it is. So, any more questions? I mean, I'll, I'll be talking about all this tonight, so. <laughs> oh, we have a question there from the. Uh, what's his name? Daniel. Daniel Perry. He looks very fashionable in his stripy jumpsuit there. Oh, he is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 